How should Christians express their gender? What do I think about membership and church discipline? And what about salvation for the mentally disabled children? I'm Preston Sprinkle, and this is Theology in the Row. friends and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Special thanks to my Patreon supporters who have handpicked, yes, handpicked these next one, two, three, four, five questions that I'm going to address here in just a minute. Thank you so much for your support and for throwing me some really tough questions. I'm excited and also nervous to get into these. Uh, there's some great stuff here and it's also sad to overlook some of the really good questions that also got thrown my way. If you want to send in your questions, you can go to, or you can email Chris, uh, at pressandsprinkle.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at pressandsprinkle.com. Please keep your questions as concise as you can. If you, if you need to give some background information, Please highlight your question so that I can see exactly what the question is and then I can also read some of the background information. I will say that I actually got the, the by far the most concise question I've ever had on this podcast. We'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Um, it's it's a yeah, it's an interesting question, really big open-ended question that was stated almost too concisely. Um, let's see. March 9th and 10th I'm going to be in Dallas Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, speaking at the Rethinking Hell Conference. That's RethinkingHellConference.com. If you have any thoughts, concerns, consternations, or constipations about the doctrine of hell, would highly encourage you to come to that conference. It's very cheap. I think it's like 50 bucks or something. You will definitely get your money's worth by going to that conference. I'll be giving a keynote address that Friday night on March 9th, and then also being part of, um, uh, I think, a couple different panels the next day. And then there's several other keynote speakers, including Chris Date, um, Greg Allison, and others who will be speaking. I'm super excited, and you should be too. That's RethinkingHellConference.com. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure registration is still open. They have room, so uh, go ahead and check that out. And if you want to know about other speaking engagements that I will be involved in, you can go to pressandsprinkle.com, check out the speaking page that I try to keep updated every few weeks. Um, I try to update it because there's always new stuff coming up. And uh, Or also, if you want to go to centerforfaith.com and go to, there's a speaking page there or an events page where I will be speaking through the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, you can go there as well. Um all right, with that in mind, let's jump into our questions. How should Christians express their gender? In the process of researching the factors that go into considering mixed orientation marriages, I stumbled upon www.genderspectrum.org and their organization's understanding of gender. I agree with uh, some of the some of gender spectrum's understanding of gender, but I do not agree that biological sex should be separated from one's gender identity, since gender norms fluctuate from culture to culture and from subculture to subculture. Would you please comment on any principles a Christian should follow when expressing the various aspects of their gender expression to a fallen world, like dress, hairstyle, non-sexual activities, etc., assuming that you agree that gender expression and gender identity should be distinguished? This is a great question. And 
I can always tell when somebody is well learned, well studied on certain topics. You can just tell by the way they word things and what they say, what they don't say, the precision um, in which they they're speaking. And, and this is a really well worded question. So whoever wrote this is, I mean, yeah, you you obviously have done a, a, a good deal of research and and um, on these questions because questions about gender are incredibly complicated and confusing today. I mean, the term gender is one of the most elastic, misused, and confused terms used today. Up until the 1970s, a little bit of background, sex and gender were used synonymously. Sex is gender and gender is sex. But in the last few decades, gender is often used to mean many different things. And I I mean, the the list is really long uh, in terms of how many different ways in which people use the term gender. I would say there's probably four primary ways in which people use the term gender. Number one, something like your own internal sense of self, who you think you are, who you identify as, or who do you believe yourself to be. Number two, some people say that gender is how you express yourself. This, this is kind of what uh, the question questioner here was getting at, you know, clothing, mannerisms, interests, and hairstyles, and so on. Uh, thirdly, gender is often used to refer to cultural expectations for what it means to be a man or a woman. So here it's not so much focused on you as an individual, but more of those sort of cultural expectations out there. And then fourth, uh, a lot of people still use the term gender as a synonym for biological sex. So, I mean, this can be super confusing. I mean, if you, um, if you hear people say, you know, there are only two genders, and I agree with that, actually, but what they typically mean is there's two biological sexes, um, which I agree with. But sometimes people just use the term gender to refer to biological sex without distinguishing the two. Now, I believe that sex and gender are related and you can't um, separate the two completely, but they do hit on different aspects of what it means to be a man or a woman. And so whenever you're in a conversation with somebody about gender, I would go no further until you define exactly what you mean by the word because two people often or rarely don't use the same word gender in the same way and in a, in a conversation, you know, it's like that scene in a princess, the princess bride, when Anigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> like I've been conversations all the time with people about gender and, and sometimes they'll use the term gender in like three different ways in a single sentence. Uh, this is why Facebook last time I checked had 71 different gender options. I think it keeps kind of growing. So I don't know if that's, was like so 19 or 2017. I don't know. Um, 71 is last time I checked. Tumblr has last time I checked 117 different gender identities. So, um, yeah. So what do I think about all this? I, I here's, here's the best quote that I found in terms of distinguishing sex and gender without divorcing the two completely. Here's the quote. Sex is a bodily biological reality and gender is how we give social expression to that reality. Okay. So sex is a bodily biological reality and gender is how we give social expression to that reality. In other words, both sex and gender are binary. Male and female are the only two options. Humans are male, which is expressed in maleness. So humans are male. That's a sex, which is expressed in maleness. That's gender. 
um, or they're female, which is expressed in femaleness. Now, it's obviously true that people experience and express their masculinity and femininity in different ways. And some people, I would say, I mean, we, we need to also <laughs> acknowledge that some people experience intense gender dysphoria where there is massive incongruence in their psychological experience with their biological sex. However, I think it's unhelpful to create a different gender identity for every individual experience, okay? Otherwise, we'd have billions of genders. If, if, if you just take gender as each individual experience or each individual expression or each individual's psychological relationship with their biological sex, then, then I think gender loses all its meaning, uh, I also think it's unscientific to completely separate the idea of gender from biological sex as if gender is something that's completely, completely, completely cultural, like we're just conditioned into it and it has, there's no sort of biological contribution to um, gender. That, that is scientifically wrong, like flat out. That, that just doesn't, that's just not true. Yes, culture does contribute to and shape gender, especially different cultural expectations, but there are universals that we see as well, where maleness and femaleness does have some universal um, expectations across all cultures. And yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track a little bit. So, so I'm fine using gender to refer to the different ways in which people are male and female, but I don't think we should use the term gender in addition to male and female. Okay, so gender should be understood within, not in addition to the two biological sexes of male and female. Okay, so that's that's sex, gender, 101 by Preston Sprinkle, Theology and Iraq. Let me give you three final thoughts that maybe are more directly related to your question. Number one, and I've already said this, there are biological realities to gender expression. So I don't want to separate the two completely. I mean, just for example, again, this is just the science. So the, the hormone, hormone levels differ between biological men and biological women, and hormone levels do affect not only your biology, but your psychology. Uh, yes, uh, horm people with more testosterone tend to be, on average, more aggressive, more competitive. Notice I said tend to be and on average. This doesn't mean that if you're aggressive and you have a female body that you therefore are a man. It just means that, on average, males tend to be more aggressive, more competitive than females, and we can scientifically trace that down to the influence that testosterone levels have on the human person, um, which is precisely why when people transition, when they want to change sexes, what do they do? They take hormones. <laughs> if hormones didn't have any effect on masculinity or femininity, then that would be irrelevant to take hormones. You just not do anything. Just, um, so, uh, yeah. So horm hormones do affect, um, one's gender experience and expectations. It doesn't determine it, but it does have an influence on it. Number two, this one's really important. Most of our stereotypes come from culture, not the Bible. And this, this plays into some stuff you said in, in the, in the question about, you know, hairstyles and, 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 um, 
and different male, female interests and so on that, that are culturally driven. Yes. I just want to agree that yes, most of our stereotypes about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman come from culture, not the Bible. The Bible does not actually give a lot of specific guidelines on what it means to be a man or a woman. This is so liberating folks that the Bible doesn't tie the bow really tightly on masculinity and femininity. I mean, think about it. Was it was David being manly when he killed Goliath or when he was playing his harp and writing poetry? <laughs> was Jesus being manly when he turned over the tables in the temple or when he, or when he let other people beat him up and when he cried over Jerusalem, wishing to gather his people as a mother hen gathers her chicks? You know, in the Bible, some women have babies and some women win wars. In the Bible, some men are, you know, like in, uh, um, um, Oh gosh, what's uh, Exodus 31? Some men are seamstresses. Seamstresses? Seamstress I? Seamstresses? They they sew garments on people. And other men, you know, fight battles and you know, hunt lions and so on. The Bible gives tremendous flexibility on what it means to be masculine or feminine. For example, look up the Titus 2 passage, okay? And if you're a woman, you probably have this passage memorized because you probably grew up in a church where, you know, every single women's Bible study did a, you know, 18 week study on Titus two, because Titus two is where it talks about older women, you know, teaching younger women to love their husbands and do all these things. Here's what's fascinating. There are 10 commands given to younger women in that passage, 10 commands, eight of the 10 are also applied to men elsewhere in scripture. Eight of the 10. There's only two commands there. There's one about, you know, being, staying at home and another one about like loving your husbands and, you know, all the other, and those might be, okay, those, those might be unique to women in that context in that day. Um, but the uh, eight of the other 10 commands are found elsewhere in scripture given to men or, or just given to Christians. The Bible is much more concerned about being godly than living out some specific type of masculinity or femininity. There's tremendous flexibility, biblically speaking, on what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Thirdly, lastly, male-female differences should be celebrated, not erased or downplayed. By saying that the Bible gives gives flexibility on masculinity and femininity doesn't mean that men and women aren't different. It just means that we shouldn't stuff them into a stereotypical box and say that they have violated scripture if they color outside the lines, if you will. But that said, yes, men and women are, as I think there's a book by this title, they are different by design. I don't know if it's a good book or not. I'm just, I just recall the title. Um, The fact that men are typically stronger doesn't mean they're better because the Bible doesn't say stronger is better. A lot of bad people were strong. A lot of weak people were good. But yeah, I mean, just that's just a biological reality. Men are typically, not exclusively, but typically stronger, typically taller. Taller doesn't mean better. In fact, in God's eyes, um, a lot of times tall people are kind of looked down upon because they're filled with pride for being so tall or whatever. Um, women are typically better at multitasking. This doesn't mean that they are typically smarter. I think that we need to think in terms of differences under the umbrella of, uh, umbrella of equality and value. God created us different. We are all equal. Doesn't mean we're all going to do the same things or like the same things or even want the same career paths as each other. And this is where the whole, you know, um, oh gosh, the James Damore memo, remember that with uh, Google where he 
basically wrote this large memo saying that men and women are different, have different interests. And uh, everybody says he's, you know, he got fired for being a sexist and racist and bigot and Nazi and slave owner and all that stuff. So, um, and all he was doing is just pointing out that, Hey, look, there's, there, we, there could be biological reasons for why more men on average, typically tend to be more interested in the so-called STEM fields of, you know, science, technology, and so on. Um, doesn't mean there shouldn't be equal opportunity for men and women to pursue those uh, careers. And there will be some women that like those typically uh, male careers. That's fine, but we shouldn't expect a 50-50 outcome because humans are not all the same. We do have different interests that could be, generally speaking, um, uh, viewed under the large umbrella of sex difference. Have I answered your question? I hope I have, because I've said a lot about this. So all that to say, um, when the Bible does give command, well, there's some prohibitions about crossing gender boundaries. Of course, I'm thinking like the cross-dressing prohibition in Deuteronomy 22.5 or... First Corinthians 11, Paul's whole conversation there is all is structured upon the fact that there are male female differences. Like the fact that they're men and women are different is sort of the foundational principle driving everything that, that Paul says about the order of worship in first Corinthians 11. And, and there's other commands that say men should be, be act like men, women should act like women. But again, the Bible is incredibly flexible in what that looks like. I think what it is prohibiting is men identifying as women, women identifying as men and expressing themselves as the opposite sex. Now that gets really dicey, gets really blurry because clothing, especially in Western cultures is there's a lot of unisex clothing and a lot of crossover, you know, so that's where I think it's not so much, let's not get lost in the weeds of, you know, the types of fabric that are on your, on your skin. It has to do more with your heart. Are you identifying as the sex that God has created you to be? Let's move on. Let's move on. This has been a long question. Number two, membership and discipline in an organic church model. I'm interested in the simple organic church model. So your last series was very intriguing and enlightening to me, though I have a lot of questions about your new church experiment. Here's just one topic for now that I'd like to hear from you. Do you plan to practice formal church membership? And if so, will this include things like church discipline when necessary? How do you expect to carry this out practically? Well, you know, we haven't gotten that far yet. Um, Thought about it. And um, I, I have gone back and forth on the membership question. People say, well, it's not biblical to have, you know, membership. And well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, I think in the first century, if you just were a Christian, you were a member of a church, not f- formally, just factually. Like that that's what it meant to be a Christian is you belong to the body of Christ. Now they didn't practice, as far as I can see in the first century, you know, kind of local church membership in the way that we view it. It was just, hey, if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. And so you belong to this church if you can walk here on Sundays or Saturdays or whatever. I mean, that's just, um, I, I just I just think they didn't really need to cultivate some sort of formal church membership also because the, the, um, the churches were so, so much smaller, you know, on average between 20 and 50 people is what historians say. The first you know, local churches were between 20 and 50 people. So when you have a church that small, you kind of don't need membership, especially in a context like the first century when, um, 
when, you know, converting from Judaism to Christianity or converting from paganism to Christianity was a pretty big deal. So it's not like you had people that kind of like would try it out for a little bit and then go back. Like that was, you know, a conversion was a pretty big deal. And so either you were in or you were out. So I think we're in a much harder context today where you have a lot of cultural Christianity and kind of, for lack of better terms, you know, lukewarm or, you know, people that are just kind of, yeah, dipping their toe in the deep end, but not really diving in. Like you didn't, you know, I think in the first century, either you dove in head first or you sat on the edge of the water, you know, but here we have people that are dragging their toes across the top of the water, just trying to test it out, see if it works for them. And when it doesn't, they, you know, take it out or whatever. So uh, different situations, which is probably why we don't have, we don't have explicit commands about what we call church membership in the new Testament. Um, so I, I all that, yeah, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Really? I, I, um, I do see value given our cultural context in having membership, though I don't think it's required. Um, and if you can get by having an informal view of membership, where, especially in a small church like ours, if, you, if you're hanging out with us for a while, you're sort of included into the practices of the family or called upon to bring a meal to this person in need or to, or to uh, maybe organize, you know, a Sunday afternoon outreach or to host a, uh, you know, a, a barbecue at your house after church or to bring the coffee for Sunday morning gatherings or whatever. Like it's, it's small enough to where it's kind of, you don't kind of sit on the sidelines very long before you start getting invited into what we call the practices of the family. So in that sense, um, it, it would seem that, I mean, formal membership might not be necessary because people are, after a while, are going to either be in or out. Um, that, that's my, no, so that's my, I, maybe that's my idealistic thoughts right now, that maybe um, we will need something more formal. Um, but I think we'll, we'll, play, we'll play it by ear. We'll see how it goes. And, and if it's um, too messy or too complicated by not having membership, then, then we're very open to, to doing that. Uh, but yes, I, I was, to answer your second question, I do believe in church discipline. Yes. I mean, it's kind of hard to get around if you take the Bible seriously. Um, I think it can be overly practiced. It can be underly practiced. And I want to bo- avoid both extremes. I think it's a very, very serious thing. Um, and so I don't want to take that lightly. Uh, and yet by ignoring it altogether, I just don't know how you can read passages like 1 Corinthians 5 and others where Paul rebukes a church for not disciplining a member who was living in ongoing unrepentant sin. Salvation for mentally disabled children. Um, does someone who has limited mental ability live by the same standard a typical person does when it comes to the judgment of God? A couple leaders in my church have referred, referred me to Matthew 18, 2-4, the childlike faith section of how to interpret the question. I've also seen, on the other hand, where people with limited mental ability have confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. I know this is a tough question, but reading Preston's materials and listening to his podcast has really pushed me in how I treat people and looking at people the way Christ sees them. All right, so I was going to go to the eight, uh, Matthew 18 passage there. Yes, I do think that while Jesus is not talking about mentally disabled people, he is talking about people that in that culture were viewed as less capable intellectually or even spiritually than adults. Children were looked way down upon in that culture. Uh, In in some cases, he viewed as kind of less than human. It was kind of like 
the man, a grown male, was the most human. A woman is kind of human. A slave is not really human. And a child, if he's a man, a boy, will end up being human at some point, but isn't quite there yet. So yes, children were look, looked upon probably through similar lenses that some people look upon people with mental disabilities today. So I think that is a, a very relevant section. And if you remember, there Jesus elevates childlike faith. So this could answer your question. Well, and also when I think about the people I've known to have had mental disabilities, even severe mental disabilities, I see a ton of faith. <laughs> I, I, I may not see, you know, somebody who is maybe understanding all the theological components of Christianity or articulating, you know, the hypostatic union of Christ, but in as much as faith means trust, trusting in God, trusting in those around you who are mediating God's presence to you, then man, I see a lot of faith, a lot of faith, a beautiful faith, a, a humbling faith in the sense that how come I can't have that much faith? Faith is more than just believing all the right things. It's trusting in God and mentally disabled people can absolutely do that. Um, I would say ultimately though, whenever I get these kind of questions, I I want to go to Genesis 18, where it says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It's a rhetorical question that should be answered in the affirmative. Yes, our trust is in God who will do what is right. Um, even if at the end of the day, we, we're not 100% sure of what's going to happen to mentally disabled people. From what I see in the character of Christ and in the teaching of Christ, I think uh, God has a special place for people with a mental disability. Um, but at the end of the day, my confidence, my ultimate confidence is not in that special place or believing that it's in God who is righteous and just and loving and will do what is right. Fourth question. Here, here's the, the record, uh, the shortest question on theology and raw and the history of theology and raw. Here, here's the question. What are your thoughts about Calvinism? <laughs> the end. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to need to drink to this one. That was water, by the way, just in case you're wondering. What are my thoughts on Calvinism, about Calvinism? Well, that's a big question. I've got lots of thoughts about Calvinism, and it depends on which aspect of Calvinism you're asking about. But typically, when people mention Calvinism, I kind of know what they're getting at. So I was raised early on in my Christian faith in a pretty Calvinistic uh, environment. Uh, master's college, master's seminary, where I went to school early on was fairly Calvinistic, not in the so like super reformed capital R, like baby baptizing, you know, pipe smoking reform type of Christianity that you may have at like Westminster seminary or, you know, reformed theological seminary or whatever. Uh, but it was, it was really Calvinistic. Uh, I was a five point Calvinist growing up and I read a lot of A.W. Pink, uh, read a lot of, uh, J.I. Packer, read a lot of, um, Oh, who's that guy? Anthony Hokema. Anthony Hokema, he's written a lot of really good books about nature of man and, and salvation and um, read a lot of R.C. Sproul and, and, and then John Piper, of course, and many others. So yeah, that, that was how my theological thinking was formed, was in a very Calvinistic environment. I, I, haven't, um, I haven't completely left all that. Let me be honest with you. Um, I still, there's much of what I hear from John Piper that I love. Um, I still, my, my life verse, if, you, if, if I have a life verse, is Psalm 115.3. My, 
My God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Or sorry, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I think God as God has the ability and right to do whatever he wants to do, even if it flies in the face of human standards of justice and rightness and fairness. So high view of God, yes. High view of scripture, yes, absolutely. I want to go where the text leads, interpret it correctly. Um, I do believe that that God is the primary and ultimate agent of salvation when it comes to divine and human agency in salvation, God gets the priority and the primacy. I have faith because he enabled my faith. Um, I am saved because 2000 years ago, um, Christ died for me. Or as one of my friends said, you know, I, I got saved 2000 years ago. I just found out about it recently. Okay. That might be a bit of an overstatement, but I, I love putting the emphasis on um, Christ's death and resurrection, not my own sort of you know, choice of, of God or whatever. So that's, that sounds pretty Calvinistic. So let me give the, give you the other side to all this. I, some things that would be very un-Calvinistic of me. Um, I'm, I don't like theological system. Well, let me say this. I think it's wrong to believe that one theological system is sort of nails it and the other ones are wrong. Um, so I don't embrace like a Calvinistic theological system. I, I really, if people ask me, are you a Calvinist? What are your thoughts on Calvinism? I, I really do need to know like what specific question do you have in mind? Because I'm not going to give some big blanket yes or no on some huge theological system, uh, parts of which I might agree with and parts of which I don't. So I'm a big fan of not embracing whole systems, but looking at individual theological themes within the system and looking at each individual theological piece of evidence for each individual theological theme or doctrine. I think sometimes we get too locked up in the systems and then we end up reading that system into parts of scripture where it doesn't exist or where scripture itself critiques some aspect of that system. So that's again, very un-Calvinistic thing to say. I, on the whole predestination thing, you know, I mean, I grew up believing in what would be called, I mean, um, yeah, unconditional predestination. God elects some unto salvation. And I've never been a double predestinarian where he therefore, therefore chooses others to damnation. I've always been more of the God elects some unto salvation and leaves the rest of humanity up to their own rejection of him, like in Romans 1, it talks about God sort of giving people up to their rejection of God. Um, That would be my default. And I haven't thought too hard about election or predestination in, gosh, at least 10 years, if not more. Um, And I've changed my view on several things since then. So, I would be very open to different views of God's sovereignty and sort of in election and predestination. So I'm not at all committed to the Calvinist position on that just because I'm a Calvinist and I can't change my view on that. No, no, I'm very open to upon further study, having a a different view of predestination as long as we maintain, I think biblically it's very clear to me having looked at this for, for many years um, that when it comes to God saving somebody that he, he is the primary agent in that salvation. Um, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, and Paul's 13 letters and and other passages seem to make that really clear. My one big departure from Calvinism, and this is more of a cultural critique, is that 
I hate to say it, but most Calvinists that I know um, don't at least give the impression that they are holding onto their views with humility and grace toward those whom they disagree with. And I know because I used to be like that. And a lot of my friends were like that. We would look down upon people who weren't Calvinists and, oh, you're just a four and a half point Calvinist. And, oh, you just haven't arrived theologically. And I, I just, it took me years to sort of detox myself from having that assumption. You'd meet another Christian and you'd get really excited if they're a Calvinist. And you had this almost like upper level kind of camaraderie with them if, if they were Calvinist and if they weren't, you, I literally would like look down like, like, Oh, so you're, you're not quite there yet is, is, is how I would think and feel. And, and I would say most of my Calvinistic friends ha- have and have or had and have that posture as well. And that's just arrogance. You guys, that's, that's just not, that's, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. And so I am turned off by the, if I can say the, 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 the streams of condescension or the condescending attitude and and in many ways, arrogant attitude that some, not all, maybe many, I don't know, uh, Calvinists have in their Calvinism, both maybe toward their doctrine, you know, they're really overly confident in what they believe and, uh, and they look down upon other people that don't believe the same. So I, I just, uh, I just, I can't, I would much rather be at a church filled with Arminians, non-Calvinists who are humble and seeking the Lord than a bunch of Calvinists who are not humble in, in their beliefs. Last question. Does Ephesians 4, 14 say we shouldn't question our beliefs? I'm going to, um, turn here to Ephesians 4, 14. And then we'll read, I want to read uh, this question here. It says Ephesians 4, 14 warns against being thrown or sorry, being blown around by every wind of teaching. How should we hold and interpret this passage when one believes like you do that questioning one's beliefs is healthy and that the truth may not be what you currently hold. Plus, how would I answer my fundamentalist Christian friends, when they quote this verse to me, anytime I bring up a different view about some theological point, first of all, let me answer that second question first. I wouldn't, in most cases, I don't answer my fundamentalist Christian friends. Um, I used to be one. I know the mindset and any challenge to their fundamentalistic beliefs is a challenge on the truth. And so if you are perceived as challenging the truth, there's not going to be any dialogue. So it's a waste of a conversation and your short life on earth to waste it talking to people that have zero ability to budge on anything. So talk about football, talk about, you know, Chris Tomlin or whatever, talk about church, talk about how awesome, you know, the King James Bible is or whatever. I don't know. Talk about something else. Don't, don't get into these, these debates with people that are, that have a, a, worldview that assumes they are absolutely right. And any challenge to their rightness is wrongness and is evil and, and shouldn't be entertained. Like that's just a waste of a conversation. Um, I, I would recommend though, as I've done several times in this podcast, uh, I would recommend devouring the book, uh, the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt. It will give you a wonderful renewed perspective on how to think through these conversations with people that are either, you know, um, maybe they're more on the fundamentalist end, or maybe they're more on the progressive end, but whatever, whatever end they're on they're 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 entrenched in their views. 
And that book is amazing at helping, um, helping us or, you know, uh, understand how to dialogue with people uh, in those sort of far extremes. Ephesians 4.14. Let me go back and read the whole context here because it's really important. Uh, We'll go back to 4.11 that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. It's a very Christ centered passage. All these gifts are given so that, so that we can be built up as a community into Christ and exemplify Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. goes on to talk about speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body is held together. It's a very Christ-centered passage. Um, and when it talks about being tossed around to and fro by waves and carried about by, or by every wind of doctrine, it's specifically... It specifically says in the verse, in verse 14, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is talking about people who have let go of Jesus or are not focusing on Jesus because um, deceitful teachers have steered them away. This isn't talking about people who hold to a older theology of creation. It doesn't talk about people who believe you can lose your salvation. It doesn't talk about people who are denying the rapture or whatever. It's not talking about, um, it's not talking about people who change their views on secondary doctrinal matters. It's not talking about people who believe in annihilation versus eternal conscious torment. These are not things that Paul has in mind. It's talking about being persuaded by crafty, deceitful, wicked people who are trying to steer your attention away from Jesus. So, how would I answer people who use this verse to say you shouldn't question your beliefs? Um, I, I would just say all that. that it's, it's not, it depends on what they mean by questioning your beliefs. Again, um, this passage isn't talking about the kinds of beliefs that I'm talking about when I say it's healthy to question your beliefs. And by questioning, I'm not saying that. In fact, I don't know if I've actually used that phrase. Have I used that phrase, questioning your beliefs? If I have, here's what I mean, that we hold our beliefs with somewhat of an open hand, always willing to be corrected by further study of scripture and further conversations with God's people in, in conversation with scripture. So it's not, I mean, I don't, um, that's a good thing, right? Following the Bible, correcting your inaccurate beliefs because of the Bible. So, um, that's all I mean by questioning my beliefs. I'd rather, rather than saying questioning my beliefs, I'd say holding your beliefs with humility and an openness that upon further study of the Bible and further theological reflection, that you would recognize that your prior beliefs were unbiblical or not as biblical, say. So I don't see, um, yeah, I, don't, I just don't see anything, anything wrong with that. And I see everything right with it. So boom. all right folks uh you've been listening to theology in a row we'll cut it off here and uh, i've got a next fresh round of questions that i'm going to post on my patreon account 
for my Patreon supporters to vote on. So uh, if you're a supporter, be looking for those in the very near future. And if you would like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. We'd love your support, but I appreciate just having the opportunity to be able to talk about these things. I get emails all the time from people that say they have really loved this podcast and are listening to almost every episode, if not every episode, and are really encouraged and challenged by it. So um, I'm so thankful that the Lord is using this podcast in your life. We will see you next time on Theology in the Realm.